Well, our purpose this morning is to understand and comprehend what it is that's going to keep us going as faithful Christians in the midst of evil and opposition. Now, uh, when there's a choice between good news and bad news, who, who likes to hear the, uh, the good news first? Uh, anyone? Oh, you're a bunch of pessimists. Okay, uh, massacres. Uh, yeah. Who likes to hear the, the bad news first? Okay, all right. Who doesn't like to hear the bad news ever and just kind of put your head in the sand and hope it all goes away, be like the ostrich, kind of, you just want roses and lollipops and to be jollied along, uh, hope the bad news doesn't exist. Well, the trouble is, if we do that, uh, if we pretend the bad news doesn't exist, uh, then we uh, not, won't be prepared for reality. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 confronts us with the sheer, stark, unadulterated reality of what life is going to be like as a Christian in this world. And it's pretty bleak stuff. It's ugly, it's hard, uh, and to be a Christian in this world is challenging. But take heart, because if there's bad news in the Bible, well, there's good news as well, and God's put it there for our good, because his word is there to grow us uh, and, and, and to change us. And especially when the times are evil and the word is, to ha- is how to go on when everyone and everything seems opposed to Jesus, how to go on as a Christian when it seems uh, to be tough. Uh, how can you continue? Well, you can see that's the issue in verse 14 here. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Continue in the faith. Continue to follow Jesus. Continue. And we're told here in chapter 3 how to do just that. How, how is it to you go on as a Christian? Uh, what's the secret to, to lasting the distance? Well, the secret is that you have to comprehend something. You have to understand something. In fact, there's two somethings that we're supposed to comprehend. We have to comprehend the times that we live in and we have to comprehend the true power of God, uh, what it really is and, and that we have it. And this chapter basically lays out both those things. It spends a lot more time on the bad news than the good, though, and we're going to spend more time on the bad than the good. So settle in, strap yourselves in. It might be a rough ride. We are in what verse 1 calls the end times or the last days. Now, I'm not saying that because I can read the signs of the times and political events as such, you know, Russia's collapsed and China's on the rise and that means Daniel's coming true or anything like that, Uh, or, you know, there's events in Israel. I'm not saying that because I've had some special revelation given to me in a dream, nothing like that. I'm saying that we're in the last days because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And all that is left to happen in God's economy is for him to return in judgment. Everything else that needs to happen before God finishes this world, in one sense, has already happened through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. I've got a bit of a picture here. It's also on the back of your handout. Uh, Thanks, Ben. There you go. We we are in what the Bible calls the last days. Uh, Now, some people think it's just a particular period of time right before Jesus comes back. But I want to convince you and help you understand that the last days are all the time from when Jesus came the first time to when he's coming back again. You can tell it's not some far off distant time that Paul's thinking of because of verse 4. He's talking about the last days. He says people will be treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of money rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. And so Paul's expecting that Timothy will be living in these days that he's speaking of. He's warning Timothy not to associate with these people who are living like this in the last days. 
And then when you start to chase up what the New Testament says about the last days, you find it's the consistent pattern that we are already there in these days. You see that, for example, in Acts chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17 where, where Pentecost is happening, the Holy Spirit has come in power and Peter stands up and announces to the crowd, you know why this has happened? Because Joel prophesied in the last days that it would. And so I'm telling you here that the last days have started 2,000 years ago when Peter was there at Pentecost. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. You see it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 where God has spoken in, the la in, in previous ages, in many times, in various, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. So they all indicate that we're in the last days now. And so the historians are right, uh, completely right, to divide everything in history between BC and AD. Everything in the universe either happened before Christ came and there's nothing else to happen other than that Christ returns and takes us to glory. And so we are here now in the year of the Lord, AD, Anno Domini. That's what this diagram's about. But what is it about these last days that we're meant to particularly comprehend about them? What is it Paul wants us to mark and understand? Well, he wants us to understand the character of them. He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in these last days. This is what to expect in these last days, in the days between Jesus' resurrection and his return, that there will be terrible periods of hardship in life, and especially so for Christians. It will not be all rosy and happy and triumph and victory. And verses 2 to 5 tell a sorry and tragic tale. It's one long, horrible list which describes life in the now time from the first century until Jesus returns. And, and you read through it, and I don't know if you were paying attention as it was read out by Libby so well a few minutes ago, but just how accurate and how apt a description it is of our society. It's basically what our newspapers are filled with and what our TV screens show every day. In fact, though I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, I would wager that if you were to buy tomorrow's newspaper, you would see every single one of these things as an article somewhere in the newspaper. People are lovers of themselves, he says. It's just the norm of our lifestyle at the moment. In fact, we're encouraged to look after number one, right? Who's that? Well, it's me. Well, you don't think it's me. You think it's you, right? Whitney Houston told us that the greatest love of all is to love yourself. Because not that a lot of people, it's to love yourself. Um, people are lovers of money. That is a judgment that could be written across the whole of this country from the 1980s up until uh, the present day in Australian commercial life. You think of the fact that the house prices rose 15% in last year. Okay, Why is that? Because it's all driven by greed. Um, uh, they're boastful and proud. You think of the Packers and the Murdochs or the arrogance of the pop princesses and the rap stars. They're abusive. Um, you know, think of the football crowds. And I, I, I hate going to the football now because it's just so obnoxious. The, the screaming and the taunting and if you're wearing the wrong coloured jersey, the vitriol, I mean, I'm not even playing for the team and you're yelling and screaming at me. Like, what's going on there? Uh, the political slanging matches, you know, where they, they try and outdo each other in insults. I mean, mud slinging is a real art in Australian politics. 
Um, you think of the abuse and the crudity that just kind of fills our entertainment. Uh, the disobedience of parents he talks about. There's a massive rise in disobedience to parents. Teens are out of control. Parents don't know what to do. And the teachers in our school, they're going through a real loss of nerve. It's really hard to be a teacher. Uh, a very great loss of morale. And it's not that the government isn't giving them enough money. It's because our whole society has promoted the cult of the child and, and they are our idol and we, we bow and worship and do everything that, that they want. And the idea of parental authority, well, that's gone out the window and, and the consequences spilling right across society. He says people will be ungrateful and, and you think about it, we are a bunch of ingrates and whingers, aren't we? You think the Poms are bad whingers. Well, yeah, we can outdo them because we beat them in everything. We can whinge better. <laughs> we are people who are rarely thankful uh, to, to others, let alone to God. Given to unholiness, and the list just goes on. This is the character of life that we face and we have. We're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Not that pleasure's bad, and, but there's something fundamentally wrong when, when pleasure comes first and God comes second. Because when that happens, morality just goes straight out the window because you just do what you want, um, which is what's happened. And you can see it um, very starkly when, when uh, what's in people's hearts when there's restrictions taken away from them. I'll give you a couple of examples. Think back to the, the New Orleans hurricane a few years ago. Flooding the city, you know, billions of dollars of devastation, lives lost and things. There was even more damage in the aftermath from the, the pillaging and looting and raping that went on by ordinary people, extraordinary numbers of ordinary people who were then arrested. They thought no one was looking, but they were unrestricted and they just did what they wanted. And it was bad. You see it um, when people first move out of home and they move into the university colleges. Um, uh, you know, the colleges at New South Wales Uni where I went, you, you went round and they all had their thing. There was kind of no alcohol in one, no women in another, uh, no degree in the others. Or when people move to mining towns or they go on long tours of Europe and so on. You see Australians 10,000 miles from home and you see Australians as they really are, a bunch of drunken yobbos sleeping with everything that moves and getting into brawls because that's what's in their hearts and there are no restrictions. No one's watching. No one's there to take note. And the reason that we're not like that before we move out is because we're just a little bit scared of our grandmothers still. <laughs> they might find out. See, this is, what we're, this is what our world is like. Now, it's not everyone and it's not all the time only ever doing these kind of things. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's rather the mood of society. And you can see that reflected in the media. You can see it reflected in people's interests. You can see it in their uh, internet usage. Uh, and you can see it everywhere if you just care to reflect, which is what God is telling us to do here, to mark this, understand this, comprehend this. These are terrible times in which we live. But notice he's not just talking about the godless pagan barbarians out there. In verse 5, he turns to religious circles and perhaps even to Christian circles. He says these kind of people have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 
And it doesn't take much looking around to see that there's an impressive body of religious adherents out there and it looks really good at heart but it was corrupt. Uh, sorry, it looks good but at heart it's really corrupt uh, and hopeless and, and it doesn't really change anybody or anything. How do you think about some of the Australian statistics that we keep hearing from the census? 90% of Australians say they believe in God. Really? They, they believe God is there, he's the maker and he's the judge? Really, they believe that. You know, uh, just under 50% of Australians claim that they are Christians? Really? Uh, and yet they're not transformed, they're not living joyful, God-centred and God-glorifying lives? Yeah, right. Indeed, it's the religious people who Paul really has in mind as far as Timothy is concerned. He's already had a go at specific people in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, the people who'd abandoned uh, Paul and the gospel and deserted. Uh, in chapter 2, he names and shames, uh, what are their names, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who um, teach that the resurrection has already taken place. So here are Christian leaders saying that we are no longer in AD, we're now living post-AD, you know, kind of way over in the future, that it's all over, Jesus has already come and he's judged, and so you know what? Do what you like, live how you like, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And he says in chapter 2 that those who indulge in that kind of teaching will become more and more ungodly, that their teaching will spread like gangrene, and they'll destroy the faith of some. And of course that kind of teaching uh, is going to destroy people and because they're no longer held accountable to God for anything. And it spreads like gangrene and it destroys people. It's a pretty attractive kind of spirituality to say, do what you like. God's not going to care. God's not going to do anything. And there's no consequences for anything. So you just worship how you like, uh, worship what you like or who you like. And it does destroy people. It leads them to greater and greater ungodliness. And so while in chapter 2 Timothy was told to gently correct and rebuke those who've come under the influence of such teaching, here in chapter 3 and verse 5 he's told to have nothing to do with the kinds of purveyors, you know, the teachers, the leaders, the false teachers of this false spirituality. He says don't associate with them. Don't have anything to do with them. And why is it so serious? What, why is it so stark that Timothy must not have anything at all to do with these kind of people? Well, it's because the alternative teachings of Christianity and religion are not just spiritually neutral and harmless, like so many would have us believe. The idea that everyone's opinion is just as good as anyone else's opinion, that, that's just garbage. It's simply not true. I mean, everyone's opinion might be as good as everyone else if there's no such thing as truth, but when there is truth in the world, then everyone's opinion is not as good as everyone else's. The opinion that's best is the opinion that's right. That's the opinion that matters. I gave an opinion on Friday night to someone that the Wanderers would get smashed in the A-League soccer by Melbourne. <laughs> now I am happy to confess that my opinion wasn't worth a thing because <laughs> uh, the Wanderers won 3-1. <laughs> my opinion was completely wrong. Steve was there. <laughs> hey? So how would you like my opinion on, on the races next weekend, which I know absolutely nothing about, <laughs> kind of thing? You can trust my opinion on that. <laughs> uh, and when it comes to the gospel, we're not just talking about 
trivial things and harm, harmless things. We're talking about matters of eternal weight and significance. We're talking about things which will either bring you to glory and life and joy and forgiveness if it's the true gospel or which will lead you straight to the fiery pits of hell if it's a false one. And Paul goes on to warn Timothy that these false teachers are like uh, what they're like, which makes them so dangerous and so destructive. And he says there's four things to watch out about them. He says, first, I'll have the form of godliness, but they won't have the power. You see that in verse 5 there. They've got a form of godliness, but they don't have the power. That is, they have absolutely no power to really change people from the inside out. You know, the, the power to change lies from perverse, arrogant people under God's curse to, to godly, loving, kind ones saved by God's grace. All they have is the form of religion. They sing their hymns, they, they light their candles, they meditate, they bow and scrape and they make a big show of how devout they are, devout they are but they have no true power of God in them. Because the power of God is the Spirit of God at work through the Word of God, which is where he's going to land at the end of this chapter. We'll get to that at some point. Now, I could pick on lots of groups at this point as examples. But let me use the example of Anglicanism so you don't think I'm just a denominational you know, pride person kind of thing. In Anglicanism, there are all sorts of bishops and ministers who dress themselves up like they're a cross between Santa Claus and the Mikado, uh, all rolled into one, who chant psalms like they are barn owls mating late at night, who diligently, formally read the prayer book services to themselves in an empty church morning and night every day of the week, and yet who are basically unconverted pagans. They wouldn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ if they fell over it. And some of them do know the gospel of Jesus Christ and they hate it with an absolute loathing and they rail against it because it holds them in judgment. I, mean, I brought some examples of books by, by Anglicans. Here you go. That just happened to be on my bookshelf because I read such stuff. All right. Here's an American one. We'll start with American. We'll come closer to home. All right, here we go. Born of a woman, John Spong. Okay, a bishop rethinks the birth of Jesus. He says, well, Jesus isn't God. He wasn't born of Mary. He never did miracles. In fact, the whole Bible was kind of made up. I mean, he's basically rehashing stuff from the 1850s, which is shown to be bunkum. But anyway, but but that's sort of current popularity. Um, reclaiming the Bible, again by him. Uh, here you go. Uh, where he says um, most of the characters in the Bible are imaginary composites or literary creations such as Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman by the world, Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Yeah, just made it all up. Who cares? Ah, oh, but I love the Bible. Yeah, anyway. Uh, close to the home. Here you go. Reflections in a glass. Uh, an Australian archbishop. Here you go. Who in it says, Jesus didn't die for our sins. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And um, basically, there is no God who is a personal being. Okay, God doesn't exist. He's basically a pagan atheist. And he was the former primate of Australia, the head archbishop. Hey, but you should go to church. I mean, it's majestic. 
the reverence, the awe. You would think that man and that church, they know God deeply and honestly. <laughs> yeah, the pomp, the ceremony, and yet Anglican churches in, in those parts, in Australia and overseas, that uh, they're dying. The churches are dying. No one's getting saved because there's no gospel. Um, it's the work of Satan, which is what Paul calls it in chapter 2. They've been taken captive by the trap of the devil and they've become his servants. And if I think that of Anglicanism, which in its core beliefs is Christian, profoundly Christian, can you imagine what I think of Christian science, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Moonies, uh, Sydney Church of Christ, or even the Roman Catholic Church, whose fundamental tenets all deny the gospel? They have the form, but they don't know the power of God. The second thing he says is they manipulate the weak and the vulnerable. Verse 6, such people worm their way into homes and gain control of weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now, he's not saying all women are weak-willed, and nor is he saying there aren't any weak-willed men. There are plenty of them around too, but he's simply noting what has been played out in every century since he wrote this, that the false teachers tend to play on the emotions of the weak and the vulnerable. And one group that is particularly vulnerable in any community is young mums at home with small children. They are easy prey because they often feel guilt over every little thing that happens. They often worry that they're terrible parents. Uh, they're often lonely. They're often bored. I mean, having to watch the same episodes of play school and poor patrol over and over and over again, it's a... Enough to drive anybody to distraction. They often feel a longing to be a whole person again and, and long to be respected and loved and so they become easy prey to the cultists. And if you go to any one of the groups around, you'll see it is filled with lonely women. The family, the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, the Anglican churches in, in, in those parts of the country, such a for anything and, and easy manipulation. Third thing to know about them, verse 8. He says, these people oppose the truth. They'll actively oppose the truth, just as Jans and Jambres or Yarns and Yambres, who knows. And, and you think, who the heck are they? Uh, well, they're the Jewish names, traditional names, for Pharaoh's magicians uh, in the book of Exodus who opposed Moses before Pharaoh. Their names aren't written in Exodus, but there was their traditional names that people had made up, and Timothy and his contemporaries would have understood that. The Jans and Jammers oppose Moses. And he says, so also these people will oppose the truth. They will speak loudly and proudly and, and profoundly like, like the guys in those books against Jesus and against his people. In fact, uh, the Archbishop in Australia, the whole book is written to shame, name and shame anyone who believes the Bible and he names people in there, people who are friends of yours and mine. But fourth and finally, and here's the good news, in due time, they'll all be seen to be failures and their teaching will be seen to be folly. Verse 9. But they won't get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will become clear to everything. Everything they say and everything they stand for will eventually be seen to be the stupidity that it is. And so heresies come and heresies go. I mean, 
is anyone reading Barbara Thiering these days? And the end of the 90s, you know, when she was releasing books from Sydney Uni on theology and why Jesus didn't exist, or at least the, you know, the way he's presented didn't exist, you know, Christians were like, this is the end of the world, right? Um, no, everyone's going to turn from Christ. But it's laughable. I mean, it took five minutes reflection at the time, but, but it's laughable and no one's reading that stuff anymore. You may be able to get it down at you know the op shop because everyone junked it, but um, but still new new ones come. And Paul says you've got to comprehend that. You've got to know what the world will be like and what the world is like and what the false religion will always do. You've got to know it because there's an inevitability that comes from it. It's in verse eleven and twelve. Verses eleven and twelve. Uh, in fact, verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You will suffer if you stand up as a Christian. Paul himself has suffered greatly, and he writes about that. And Timothy has to understand, and we have to understand, that that's just going to be reality. That if you're going to be living a godly life in Christ, you're going to be constantly swimming against the stream, which is really hard to do. You'll be constantly holding the, the world's values in question and you'll be constantly the odd one out on subjects of religion and morality and lifestyle. And therefore, because you don't go along with other people's greedy, shady business practices and because you won't go along with the drunken debauchery of their parties, because you won't go along with their religiously impressive but spiritually bankrupt religion, they're not going to like you very much. And they'll oppose you. And you may well be overlooked for promotions. You may well lose friends and even family. You may well be, uh, lose your job and your family and be driven out like our friend Phil Mildenhall was when he stood up against the stuff that was happening in his workplace as a Christian man. Um, and if you care to stand up and call them to account, on top of that, if you insist that Jesus is the Christ who has won the victory over evil and who is going to hold them to judgment one day, then they'll really hate your guts. They've got to because they've got two options, either to say you're right and to repent and change or to say you're wrong and try and stop you. And that's what they often choose. Well, if that's the reality of the times, what, what is going to keep us going as Christians in the face of that? And there's actually something wonderful to comprehend that will keep us going. One simple fact to understand. And that is that though we might look weak and though we might feel weak in the face of it all, we actually have this spectacular, wonderful power of God at work in us, motivating us and holding us and transforming us day by day. It's not the power to get fit, which I can't discover the secret of. <laughs> it's not green power. It's not the kind of political power and it, it's not a power that even people will recognise because it actually looks pretty dull when you, when you see it. But it's actually the power of God, the kind of power that every politician, every treasurer, every legislator, every teacher would really like to hold, the power to fundamentally change people from the inside out. 
And you see it in what Paul reminds Timothy that he already knows. He's got to comprehend the times, but then he's reminded of what he already knows. What did Timothy know? Well, three times he's told, you know, you know, you know. Verse 10 and 11, what did Timothy know there? Well, he knew Paul. He knew Paul's teaching and knew his lifestyle and, and he knew the character of his life and, and how God had changed him and helped him. Uh, verse 10, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And there's the power of God to enable Paul to respond without bitterness and without revenge, but with grace and love and perseverance, even in the face of some of the most violent and evil abuse that's happened in the history of this world to him personally, which you can read about in the book of Acts. And the Lord stood with him through it all. Second thing Timothy knows, verse 14. He knows those who've taught him from the beginning. Back in chapter 1, we were told that was his mum and his grandma, Lois and Eunice. And they nurtured him in faith as a kid and, and helped him to grow up. And, and, he, and he's, he's telling you, you, you know what they are. They were solid, solid Christians, your mum and your grandma. Um, they they love the scriptures. They taught them to. They love God. And, and, God, and Timothy could see how God had powerfully worked in their lives. Timothy's close enough to the, to the teachers of the gospel to know who they are, to know their life, to know their character, to know they're not just tricksters after your money. That's one of the problems of having visiting preachers or going to conferences. It's the problem of podcasting sermons. You can't really know the person that you're listening to. Now, you don't know the character of their life. You don't know if it matches up with what they're teaching. But even without knowing the people, there's a final thing which Timothy knows which is the most important thing to know. And that's the famous bit that the chapter ends with. Verse 15 you know the scriptures. Indeed, from intimacy, you have known the holy scriptures and what are they able to do? What power do they hold? You have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, the man of God, the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So they might know God and know how to please him and know how to stand firm and continue on in the face of it all. You know the scriptures. You, you know them from me. You know them from your mum. You know them from your grandma. You've studied them yourself. And so, Timothy, you know the power of God by which someone may be saved from hell for heaven by Jesus because that's who they point to. You know the truth of them. You know, you know the power they have to remake and, and, and remodel and, as they teach, rebuke and correct and train you in uh, righteousness, in the ways of God, to live life as one of Jesus' saved people. And um, I didn't write this in here, but someone asked me, to, what, you know, there's four things that the scriptures do. Well, I've got a picture here to describe it. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, there you go. That's what the scriptures do. Um, <laughs> They teach you the way to go. They, they tell you what the destination is and that there's a path and, and, and how to get on it. They rebuke you. that when, you, when you're off the path, they kick you in the butt and they, they say, you're gone, you're gone off the path. They correct you. They, they help you get back on track. 
and they train you in rush so you can know how to walk along it and keep going and keep going and keep going. I mean, that's why they're so powerful. They're powerful because they're God-breathed. That is, he's the author of them. When you speak it, it comes out, you, you, you talk by breathing out, right? No one <laughs> talks on the way in, right? You try it later, it's very hard. Um, yeah, that, it's breathed out, it's his words. He's the author of them. That's why they're so powerful. It's his clear, powerful, authoritative, sufficient and supreme word by which people are saved and remade for him and his good purposes. Now, they're not a magic potion. The, you know, the Bible's not something you kind of could, could wrap up in a shawl and, and carry next to your heart and it'll do things for you or you hang it up on the mantelpiece and there's, there's my talisman of power. Um, it's got to be red, right? You can't, you can't get it just by kind of rubbing your head against it, you know, as if that's going to transform. You've got you to be learning it. The scriptures will be learned, they'll be discussed, they'll be taught, they'll be studied, they'll be understood, which is you know, why, why that's our focus in church. Because this is the power of God for transformation. And it's by the power of studying the Word of God that God's Spirit does His work in your life, enabling you to be a bold and joyful servant of God, even when it's hard, even when we're challenged, and when worse things happen, so that we can continue in these last days and continue on as God's people, as God's children, as God's soldiers, as God's servants, as God's witnesses as God's ambassadors to a dark world, holding out his word of life that can save them too. Father, we want to thank you for your powerful word. We thank you for those who've taught us before and those who are teaching us now and those who run our groups and, and take your scriptures into schools and, and to the youth and the kids uh, even now. We pray, please, that we might study them and know what you've got to say and know your promises and the life that you offer and, and how you know, trusting Jesus is what we need to be saved and have life with you. We thank you that it's not of us, that it's all from you. And so we pray, please, that you'll enable us to stand firm. Thank you that you've warned us that the world is dark and as we reflect on it, it is dark and there are hard times. But please use your powerful word to keep transforming us that we might go on as Christ's soldiers and servants all our days and glorify you in everything that we do by doing the good works you prepared for us before the creation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.